Welcome to Heartland Church. It is our prayer that as you listen to the following message, you would experience the heart of God for your life. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Now, let's join this week's service already in progress. All right, let's get into the Word. If you would turn with me to Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58. Want to look at fasting. Usually during the fast, we'll take at least one week to look at fasting. And uh, fasting is a strange thing. It's a, it, it, you know, if, if you're... If you're standing on the outside of this thing looking in, you think, that is really weird. You think that skipping meals is going to help anything other than your weight and your health. Uh, But we're not fasting to lose weight. That may be a side benefit. We're not fasting. You may be fasting for your health, but we're fasting for God's purposes to be revealed, for God's purposes to be realized in the earth. And so I want to lay some tracks here this morning on why we fast There is a logic, it's a theologic. Theology is the logic of God. It's the the concept, it's the study of God. And there is a logic, a theologic behind fasting. Fasting makes sense if you understand it. But often we don't. And so it's hard to engage wholeheartedly in something you don't understand when it's going to cost you something. When it's going to... Uh, when when you're going to have to deny yourself, you're going to have to sacrifice to engage in this thing. It's often hard to engage ourselves if we don't understand. And so I want to look at fasting and really tie this in with the theology of prayer. Now, I've taught many times over the years on a theology of prayer. And the reason I do that is this house is called the intercession. We have, I've said this before, but for those of you who have just joined us in the last year, Uh, I have a strong conviction in corporate callings. I have a strong conviction in unique callings. Just like every one of us as individuals have a unique calling. It's based on our, our natural gifting, our supernatural gifting, God's hand upon our life. It's also based upon our history and our experiences. And God uses for good what the enemy meant for bad. All of that comes into play to form a unique calling, a unique impact, an imprint that we're to leave on planet earth as an individual. Well, that is also true of churches. There is no church that is called to do it all. Because the kingdom is so vast, there's no way we could capture it all. So what God does is He, he raises up men and women and with a vision and He gathers people around those men and women as a tribe of people who identify with that calling. And when they speak, when they talk about what God has called them to, they say, man, that's it. You've put into words what I've, t- what I've been called to. And corporately, together, then we're called to make an impact. We're called to do specific things. Does that make sense? So that's our corporate calling. And so other churches may not be called to what we're called to, and we're not called to what they're called to, and we bless them. It doesn't make us better or them better. It just means we're different because we're called to specific things. And one of the the components to the calling on this house is we are called to intercession. We are called to fasting and prayer. Now, those of you that have been around for, you know, 15 15 years or so know that uh, there was a season of a lot of fasting about 15 years ago uh, before we broke into some things and, and God began to move in power. And the first wave of fasting was really God dealing with us and then God began to visit us. And there were some glorious experiences over in that other building on the other side of town. 
uh, they, it's now occupied by the Open Bible Church, and I need to go over there sometime and ask Pastor Wally if I can just go lay on his floor at, at the altar. Because I had some sweet times with Jesus where there was breakthrough uh, on that floor. But it was in, in response to the fasting of his people, the hunger that God began to develop in his people. And so I want us to understand that this is core to who we are, that we are called to prayer and fasting. I, I heard a wonderful testimony. I might have shared this last week. Okay, honest. I'm a little fuzzy, so I apologize uh, if I repeat myself from last week. But uh, I, I got a wonderful testimony from one of the students in the school last week. I was reading through their papers, and, and uh, there was a couple that came in via email that I didn't see. So I, I was reading over them before the class so that I could give them to them. The other one I'd read you know, a couple months ago. And and this particular one, they were sharing how when they came to Heartland, it just felt like home, but they were struggling with a tremendous oppression and depression and even, even had struggled with suicidal thoughts and, and uh, came to Heartland. And the second week they were here, they had a vision during worship where there was this rope that came down with a, a, a pole on it. And they said it was like a water skiing rope, you know, that you grab. And, and uh, I thought it was interesting. They said, I'm not sure what it meant. And immediately I knew what it meant because... I've seen that picture in the spirit many times over people. And it's the hope of God that you grab his promises. And when you're sinking in life, that if you can grab the promises, the very thing that was once drowning you will become the thing you ride upon. But it's holding on to the promises and the momentum of those promises. And it was just such a, a wonderful paper. It just so blessed me. And I'm not going to say who it was because I didn't ask them permission. But uh, they shared this, that... A couple years ago, when we were praying during the elections, before uh, the, the presidential election, and we just felt this tremendous burden to pray through those elections. And, and uh, God had begun to speak to us prophetically several years before about Donald Trump. And it was, you know, it, the whole thing, I still don't understand it all, but we, we just felt this burden to go into fasting and prayer. And and uh, as we did, one night, we had three nights of prayer. And it was, I just remember it being intense prayer. And uh, this individual was sharing that they were in the back praying, God, let, every, let that, everything be revealed. Where your light shines, nothing, darkness cannot remain. Where your light shines, darkness cannot remain. And they said, suddenly they saw a bright light and they saw something run, a black figure from the left to the right, and out of the picture, they said they left that night feeling greatly energized. Now understand, they had been struggling with depression, anxiety, crippling depression and anxiety for years. And they said they felt very energized. The next morning they got up and it was still gone. They said their life was changed in that prayer meeting. Now here's what blows my mind. We weren't praying for deliverance for people. We weren't praying for individual breakthrough. We were praying for our government, God's purposes, that God's will would be done at a governmental level. And in the midst of praying at a governmental level, someone goes through deliverance, because that's what that is. It's not an indictment on them. Just this morning, Emily Huffy came over to me, and she, I, was, I looked over, and I thought, I'm going to go pray for Emily. And before I could, I saw her kind of slide behind me and put her hands on my back. She began to pray for me, so I just thought, I'll receive. And as she's praying, something lifted off my mind. I'd been, I hadn't even realized it. I'd been in a warfare for the last couple days, just, in, in just these stormy thoughts and having a hard time concentrating. And as she prayed, just this peace came over me. It was a form of deliverance. There was an, uh, an oppression on my mind that came off of me.
But here, my point is this, that in the midst of this, this individual was delivered of something that had been plaguing them for years. And it happened in the context of us gathering around our corporate mandate as a house. It was while we were about the father's business, our mandate, we were going after this thing. And in the meantime, they got free. And they're still free. And they've been getting to venture out into some things they would have never done before had they not had that encounter with the Lord. And it just so blessed my heart. And so we need to understand that we're called to intercession. We're called to prayer and fasting. But we need to understand why. And so let me do just a little primer on intercession. Those of you that have been around for a number of years, you've heard this before. It won't hurt you to hear it again. Uh, Repetition is the mother of learning, but those of you who have never, we need to really fill in the gaps. So the question is, why do we pray? Why, why should we pray? Why are we asking God about things? If God is omniscient, if He knows everything already, why am I spending time asking Him, telling Him about things that He already knows about, and asking Him to move in areas that He already is aware of? Why do I need to ask Him to do those things? Furthermore, there's a theology that says that everything that happens is the will of God. It's called Calvinism. And if everything that happens is the will of God, why am I asking Him to change circumstances when He's already going to do what He's going to do anyway? And so these, this, this concept of prayer and fasting really converge. They're at the crosshairs, the zenith, of a number of theological issues, a number of theological debates. Calvinism and Arminianism are one of them. The sovereignty of God and the authority of the believer. So why do we pray when God already knows what we need? Aren't we wasting our breath? Isn't it somewhat insulting to God to begin to tell Him about what He already knows like He's unconcerned? And if he already, he already knows, and then you have this other component that everything that happens is the will of God, then why are we praying? Well, the fact is, we see in Hebrews chapter 2. Matter of fact, turn there with me. Uh, if, if, uh, who was on the, the screen this morning? If you can pull it up, if you could pull up Hebrews 2 on the screen. I don't know if you can this morning. I didn't, I didn't tell him in advance. Hebrews chapter 2, it says this. He's quoting Psalm 8. He says... Uh, What is man, this is Psalm 8, and he's quoting it in in Hebrews 2. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you would visit him? You made him a little lower than the angels and put everything under his feet. What the psalmist is saying and and the writer of Hebrews is reiterating, he's framing creation. That God created things in this way. That everything was put under man's feet. That God delegated the the world, the earth, to man. That is very important for you and I to understand. Because God does know your needs, but He delegated the earth to you. And He will not violate the system that He set up. So if He delegated it to you, He's not going to override your authority. So what heaven is waiting for is the invitation of the believer for his intervention. Often we're wringing our hands saying, why isn't God doing something? And God's saying, why don't you ask? 
operate in this great weapon that I gave you called intercession and come before my throne and petition me because I've delegated authority to you and God will not violate the system He set up. Anything God does in the earth, He will do through prayer. He's going to stir one of His servants in intimacy with Him. He's going to stir their heart. As we draw near to Him in worship, as we draw near to Him in relationship, we begin to pick up His desires. We begin to desire the same things He does. Sometimes He gives us prophetic clarity so that we can zero in on those things and we can articulate that before the throne and we begin to understand this is what God wants. And so we take it before His throne in intercession, in, in, in a... We're asking God for His intervention. And that's the way this system works. The spiritual realm operates by authority. There is, no, there is no movement in the spiritual realm, but it goes through authority. And so we need to learn to exercise the authority that is given to us. And just let me pause here in mid-sentence. See Jackie here. Uh, Jackie's cousin is a police officer down in, is it North Carolina or South Carolina? North Carolina. He was shot, uh, he, he pulled over a couple of young men and he was shot in the throat and in the stomach. And uh, they have done, medical science has done everything they can. And we need a miracle. And so I want us to take this thing before the throne this morning. And let's practice what we're preaching right now. Father, Lord, we ask for Charlie. Lord, we ask for your mercy, for your intervention. And Lord, we're at, just pray right now. Just begin to ask the Lord. Lord, we're asking God. This is lab time. Father, we're asking for breakthrough in Charlie's life. Lord, we're asking that you would revive his organs. Lord, stimulate his mind, Father. Lord, any, Lord, any, any area of his mind, his organs, his body, where death has begun to enter in, where it be, is beginning to shut down. Lord, we release the life of the Spirit Lord, the power of God, Lord, in Jesus' name, Lord, we ask that there would be resurrection power would begin to flow over him. Lord, bring him to consciousness for your glory. And Lord, in this, Lord, I ask that he would encounter you and he would come to saving knowledge in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the reason we need to pray is because God delegated the earth to us. Even though he knows, we need to ask because we're inviting his his intervention. So, as we've said at other times, here is the principle of prayer in a concise way. Divine intervention only by human invitation. Divine intervention only by human invitation. And so we must understand this principle. Because if we don't, we stand idly by in a low-grade frustration, wondering why God isn't moving, when the first step is ours. To ask he said, whatsoever you ask, you shall receive. And so we need to engage ourselves in this thing. We have a role to play. As human beings, we have been de delegated awesome authority. God never took that authority back. But we did relinquish it. So we see in Hebrews 2, he quotes uh, Psalm chapter 8. And then he jumps out of that passage in Psalms chapter 8. And he adds this comment. What is man that thou art mindful of him? The son of man you would visit him. You made him a little lower than the angels and he put everything under his feet. And then he stops there and the, the uh, author of Hebrews adds this. Yet at present we don't see everything subject to him. Why? We don't see everything subject to man even though it's been delegated to him 
because of the abdication of the fall. So in the, that first verse, we have creation. But in that second statement, we don't see everything subject to him. It's talking about the fall. The effects of the fall is that you and I, it wasn't taken from us. We willingly gave it away through sin. Romans 6 says this. He who, uh, to whom you obey, to him you were a slave, essentially. And so when we sinned, when we obeyed Satan then through sin, when we chose consciously to sin, we abdicated our authority and the enemy now uses our authority to manifest his kingdom through the fall. So then, this, then in Hebrews 2 it says this, but, here's the good news, this is where the gospel comes in, but we see Jesus made a little lower than the angel. What's he talking about? He's, it's now talking about the incarnation. Jesus stepped in as a, sin, a sinless, unfallen human being so that he could continue to exercise that authority. The winds and the waves obeyed him. He ruined funerals. Everywhere he went, sin was, was, was disentangled. Matter of fact, there's a verse in Hebrews that the, when it talks about Jesus undoing the works of the enemy. Literally in the Greek, it has one of the ideas is pulling the thread out of a garment so that it's almost like you're sewing a shirt, but you forgot to put a thread in the bobbin. Those ladies who sew, I've sewn before. I really have, okay? And you forgot to put thread in the bobbin, and you put, hold it up and it falls apart because there's nothing to hold it together. That's the idea be, behind Jesus undoing the works of the enemy. And so Jesus, we were given all things. It was delegated to us. We abdicated it in the fall so we don't see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus now made a little lower than the angels. He became human and says now crowned with glory and honor. Then we see redemption. Now in, he, in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, the last two verses of Ephesians chapter 1, it says that everything has been put under Jesus' feet. Romans 8 said everything has been put under our feet. Ephesians 1 says everything has been put under Jesus' feet. And then there's a little comma and it says, for the church. That's how we got our authority back. We now have our authority back as human beings in Christ. But we must exercise that authority. We need to learn to utilize this wonderful weapon of prayer. And so God is not going to violate the system He set up. You know, God is really a team leader. God is really a... a uh, uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? He's a, he, he likes to work in teams. He's not a one-man show. He likes to operate in teams. You see this even in the heavenly realms. I've been studying this lately, and it's fascinating. Over the last year and a half, just looking into this, uh, you, you see it in, in the book of Job where the sons of God gathered uh, with God and God began to speak to them. You see it in, in uh, First Kings where the prophet Micaiah, uh, Ahab, wanted him to give him a prophetic word. He, wanted, he didn't want to call Micaiah because he, was good, he knew Micaiah would give him a true word. And he wanted these false words from these other prophets. And Micaiah, this prophet of God, goes into this vision and it says he saw, he said, I saw the Most High and these other spirits. I don't remember the word it uses off the top of my head. But these other spirits. And he says, how are we going to entice Ahab? 
He asked these other spirits. And they each give different ideas. And one comes forward and says, this is what we'll do. And God said, let's do it. Isn't that weird? That's not the way we think of God working. But it's because God, as a king, has many layers to his administration. He even has a heavenly family. These, these high-level angelic creatures are known as the sons of God. Now, Jesus is the only begotten son. It's a, it's a unique word in the Greek. It's monogenes. It's, it, it's the only begotten. The others are created sons. But he is the only unique son that came from the Father. He's the uncreated eternal son that's one with the Father. So he's unique from them. But God has a heavenly family. And he longed for an earthly family. And that's why he made us. And so in so doing, he wants us to be a part of his administration. And so God doesn't just administrate something, uh, things on the earth and we're just pawns in the game up down here and watching it all happen. No, you need to be engaged in this thing. Your will, your decisions matter. So all of that explains why we need to pray. But it doesn't, under, doesn't explain why we need to continue to pray about certain situations. If we have authority, why don't we pray and they change? It understands the necessity of prayer, but not the battle of prayer. And that demands we look at another component in our theology of prayer. Over here, there's two components in the theology. There was God the Father, and then there's us on earth, the humans on earth, and we're petitioning to the Father to do things. But as we know, we gave up our authority. How? By obeying this enemy, this, this foe that we have, and he has dug his heels in on the earth through leveraging the wills of other people so that evil begins to be entrenched in the earth. You ever notice how there are certain places that are more oppressed than others? You ever driven through a town and it's like you can just tell, whoa, there's something going on in this area of town. You, you drive through one area of town, you feel like you need a bath. It's because there's entrenched evil there. But that evil only has authority because of human relinquishing of its own, you know, humans relinquish their own authority. Human bondage to sin breeds demonic oppression in the area those humans live. It's that simple. And so what God wants to do is he wants to send sent ones, those that have been discipled and disciplined by him, he wants to send them in there and create a beachhead for the kingdom of God to begin to invade that area. So that light breaks into darkness and all of a sudden the kingdom of God arrives. And that when people meet those people, something different, something different begins to happen. When they come around them, there's peace when they've always been oppressed. There's healing when they've been sick. And so we need to be those people that are engaged in this process. So we have a theology, a study of God, understanding how God created this thing. Then we have an anthropology, a study of man, that God delegated it to man. But then we need an angelology and even a demonology to understand that there is an enemy that's engaged in this thing. And he's thwarting God's will through the wills of other people. And the level of their commitment to evil matters. There is an interesting passage. I want to say it's in 1 Kings. I don't even remember the king off the top of my head, but it, you, some of you will remember this story. 
uh, there was the, the, uh, the king was walking along the top of the roof and he had torn garments underneath. He had grieving garments, but he had his royal garments over because they were being besieged by the enemy. So they couldn't get any supplies in. There was the siege works of hell coming against the children of God. And the king was so distraught, he was walking and praying, and he got word that there was a couple of ladies that had made a commitment they will eat each other's sons. You remember that? It's a crazy story. And I'm not sure, this this may even be another story. I really apologize this morning. This, uh, there was the, 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 the children of Israel attacked through a prophetic word, attacked the enemy. And they, I want to say it was a king of Moab and they began to uh, slaughter the Moabites and then the king got back to his city and he slaughtered his own son. Do you remember that? slaughtered his son on the city wall. Does anybody remember that story? I mean, it's a gruesome story. Like, and, then it's all, and it says, the battle was fierce and Israel went home. Like, what is that? They had a prophetic word to attack the enemy. And through a prophetic word, they were seeing great victory. And then this pagan king sacrifices his own son, the heir to his throne. And it says, then the battle was fierce. As if there's this unseen element that entered the battle to the point that the children of Israel ended up going home. They won a great victory, but the victory they were promised wasn't fulfilled because they gave up because of the fierceness of the battle that was traced back to the sacrifice of this pagan king. What is going on there? I don't know that I know all of it, but I tell you, part of it is this. That through that sacrifice, that pagan king was making, sending a message to the demonic realm. He was, he was buying in, in, a, in a, 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 a sacrificial buy-in, in a great way. He, not a great way, but in a, a, a huge way. He was saying, I'm in for this thing. I'm asking for aid. And in, in shedding that innocent blood of, the, of his son... There was a demonic uh, breakthrough that came for him because what he did is he yielded a greater level of his will to the enemy. Okay, that's what was going on there. This principle is not isolated to the kingdom of darkness. This is a spiritual principle that can be used for either. And fasting is a way for us to Enter into that principle. Because what the principle is, is I want to give more of my will to the kingdom of heaven. I want more of me to be bought in. I want to buy into this thing. I want to put myself on the altar. I want more of me given over to God. What God needs to move in our region is an inlet, a human inlet through which he can flow and begin to manifest himself. And fasting enables us to buy in. Fasting enables us to yield a greater measure of our will in, in, uh, in that, that process. We're giving ourselves over. We're saying, God, I'm going to give up the very thing that I want, especially that first three days. Anybody else have visions of burritos dancing in their heads? But we're going to say, no, God, I want you more. I want breakthrough more. 
And there's a buy-in that happens in the human spirit. So that's, that's kind of the principle of prayer and touching on the principle of fasting. But I want to bring one other thing here. The main thing I wanted to talk about this morning. Isaiah 58. Read with me and, and we're going to read through verses 1 probably. We're going to read down through probably 10. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. Isaiah 58.1. Then he says, For day after day they seek me out. Listen to what it says. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. I was reading this in the ESV this morning, and it's not as strong in the ESV. And uh, I, I don't know which one I would side with. Uh, the NIV is more of a rebuke to the children of Israel. The ESV is more of an explanation. God stepping in and trying to explain to him, this is why you're not having breakthrough. You're crying out for it, but this is why it's not working. The NIV is stronger. It's more of a rebuke. Kind of a knock on the head. You know, hey, this is why it's not working. And so he says, they ask me, they, they, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions, and they seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you have not noticed? Now let's just stop right there, midstream on verse 3. I want you to catch the scenario here. This is the children of Israel, God's chosen people. The prophet Isaiah comes to them with the word of the Lord. And God says, you seem to really want this thing. You're crying out for this. You're, you're putting words to it. And then they're saying, Lord, why have we fasted? So this is a people. This is not a, a, uh, a people that aren't engaged. These are people who have taken part in fasting and intercession. They're crying out to God. They're going without meals. They're looking to heaven for resolution. They're, they're looking to the right place. And they're saying, God, we want you to move. They're asking God for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near. Why have we fasted and you have not seen? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? And then God begins to answer. Midstream, verse 3. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. He, he charges them with two things and both pieces to this thing are very, very important to us. Number one, he says, you do as you please. See, one of the primary purposes of fasting is for us to align our will and therefore our behavior with God's. I told someone this morning, they said, how's the fast going? I said, well, it seems like the first week for me is like, I'm, I'm like a, a wild stallion that just got roped in the wilderness and the first week i'm bucking and kicking and trying to bite and you know you know and i said the second week I, you can put a saddle on me and bridle in my mouth but i'm still going to try to buck you every now and then and come by the third week i'll be a well-trained stallion you know just responding to the command yes sir over here yes that's one of the purposes of fasting god is trying to deal with our hearts We've been posting some things on Facebook just to help people along and fasting, just some thoughts. And one of the things that we posted the other day was that intercession is a battle that takes place on two fronts, always. And this is a, 
grossly neglected principle. Often people don't realize that whenever you're praying for external breakthrough, God's wanting to do an internal work. And so there's always two battles going on simultaneously. Whenever you begin to ask God for something. There's the request you bring Him, and there's the request He brings you. There's the cry of your heart for intervention, and there's the dealings of God that God begins to deal with you. And what God's trying to do is dial you in and bring you into greater intimacy and greater alignment with who He is and His will. A greater sensitivity, a greater desire to please Him. And so God begins to put His finger on things in our life and kind of dial that thing in. There's a principle in Zechariah that says that I would not hear them when they cried because they would not listen when I spoke. That is a divine principle of the kingdom. You hear that? I would not listen to their prayers because they would not listen to my commands. Prayer is a mutual exchange of requests. When you come to God and you give Him your requests, God begins to deal with you. Now let's pause there. Because doesn't that smack of legalism? It does to me. It feels like legalism, like I'm earning that. The problem is I can't, I know legalism is not scriptural. Legalism is that, that idea that I have to earn my relationship with God. But I can't reconcile that with these other verses, like that one I just quoted, uh, John, in the book of John, where Jesus says, uh, if you obey my commands, then you will ask what you will and it shall be done. What's the deal? This is New Testament, okay? If you obey my commands, you ask what you will. Okay, you say, but pastor, that's prior to the cross. I know some people roll like that. I don't. But that's, that's how they view it. So, okay, let's go after the cross. So listen to what it says in 1 Peter. Gets, he gets into marriage, and he says this. This is the, the application of this same principle to the marriage relationship. Husbands, be... Uh, let me just put it in my paraphrase. Be sensitive to your wives. It says, know, know your wife. That your prayers may be heard. Literally what it's saying is be sensitive to her. Gentlemen, you need to be perking your ears up right now. Be sensitive to your wife. Because it has everything to do with the success of your prayer life. Because our relationship here and our ability to break through and be a person of prevailing prayer and see answers delivered through our prayers, that is totally dependent upon this. So how I treat people will determine the success of my prayer life. I can actually cancel with my actions what I prayed with my mouth. And that's what Isaiah is telling the children of Israel. You see this battle of prayer, this thing, when we begin to cry out to God for breakthrough, we cry out to God, God, I want, I want, I want more of you. I want more of you in my life. I want more, a manifestation of your kingdom. I want to see it in my children, my household, my church, my city, my region, my nation, the world. What God needs is he needs an inlet, somebody to come through. For God's will to be done, it's got to come through a human will. 
And what he needs then is for a human will to be aligned with his own. See, if you disregard God's will but pray for revival, you're never going to see it. Because as you cry out for revival out there, God's going to come to you and say, I want to bring it here. I want to bring it in a very practical way, in the way that you talk to your wife, in the way that you respond to your husband. Let's, let's be equal opportunity here. Teenagers, in, in the way you roll your eyes to your parent, at your parents, that stuff matters. Those little judgments in our heart. I don't know if you've ever... I'm sure we all have our, our uh, context in which we've experienced this. But for preachers, this is how it works for preachers. You get invited to preach someplace and it's a really important gig, okay? I mean, it's, it's an important event. And you're like, there's, there, you feel the sobriety of this thing. And so there's an extra tenderness that you walk with the Lord up till that time. Anybody have ever experienced that in some form or fashion? There's this extra tenderness. It's like, okay, Lord, I, I just, you know, man, someone pulls out in front of you, bless you, bless you, you know. Someone steps on your foot, oh, glory, you know, bless you, you know. Just, you're, man, you, you don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to live there. And seasons of prayer and fasting are to pull us deeper into that type of lifestyle. Where we're so sensitive to Him that there's always, every conversation is a three-way conversation. The one we're in front of, but also the one that we're in communion with in our heart. And we're sensitive to him. That little impression, don't say that. Don't, don't mention, they don't need to know about that. Don't say it that way. We're, we're sensitive to him. Why? Because we're bringing heaven to earth. Jesus' heart is coming through us to those people. And as God begins to transform us, as God begins, begins to gain the upper hand in the internal battle, and I become different, I am transformed we begin to see the situation externally that we're praying for. There's a turn of events, and God begins to gain the upper hand there. And these two things are not disconnected. They're simultaneous. But the victory out there is dependent upon the victory in here. The success of my prayer life is dependent upon the yieldedness of my heart. I want, to, I want you to listen to that again. Husbands, know your wife. Or dwell with, the, the NIV, or the King James Version says, dwell with her according to knowledge. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Dwell with her according to knowledge. It means make her the study of your life. Because you being a good husband has everything to do with you being a good man of God. And it has everything to do with prevailing prayer coming out of your mouth. And our bad attitudes with people can cancel out our prayer. And so as we go into these seasons, we need to have a heightened awareness of that and say, God, what are you wanting to deal with in me? Lord, what are you wanting to do in me? It says of Jesus himself in Hebrews chapter 5. During his life, 
Jesus, with loud cries and petitions, made his requests known unto God. He was wailing. He was crying out to God. And his, his prayers were heard because of his reverent submission. It's the same principle. It was true in Jesus' life. It's true for the New Testament believer. It was true for the Old Testament believer. Why? Because it is a kingdom principle. That when we pray for God's kingdom to come, if you're carrying a burden for one of your children, you want to enter into a season of intercession for them and, and see something turn, then understand that there's a mutual exchange of requests and expect it, look for it, ask for it. God, what are you wanting to deal with in me? Lord, I want every part of my life to be aligned with you. If the Son of the sinless Son of God, God incarnate Himself, was heard because He was reverently submitted to the Father, how much more do I need to be? Your salvation is a free gift, but your prayers demand cooperation. And it doesn't mean you earn the answer to your prayers. But it, it is, a, it is a, 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 a team thing here. We have a role to play. As human beings, we're petitioning heaven. And then God begins to deal. And God is maneuvering on the earth. I've got stories about this that I've told for years. And those of you that have been around for years have heard them before. But I have to share this with those, for those that have just been here in the last year. When the first time, I believe it was, when we began to cry out to God for revival, in that first 21-day fast, we were in the middle of the fast, and I was just crying out to God, and God spoke to me, and I saw a vision. And the vision was of my mama's Kool-Aid pitcher from when I was a kid. It was burnt orange. It went very well with our avocado green refrigerator. We had one of those. It looked like a hippie kitchen, you know. My dad redid it, and my mom and dad are conservative people. It looked like a hippie kitchen, you know, like psychedelic carpet and avocado green, you know. And we had a, a burnt orange Kool-Aid pitcher, and it was one piece of plastic. had a handle, the, the thing, and then there was a spout, one piece. And then there was a one-piece top that you put on the top, and you turn the top. And uh, on one side, there were three holes cut. And on the other side, there was a square. Anybody remember those Kool-Aid pitchers? Yeah, you were raised in my era. And so you turn it, and you can pour your, your Kool-Aid out. If you want a real good pour outpour, you, have, you put the hole. If you want a real slow strain, you put the three holes. And if you don't want any coming out, you just turn it so the hole is not aligned with the spout. And the Lord showed me that pitcher, but in the pitcher, the pitcher, <laughs> the Kool-Aid pitcher had the lid on it, but it was only partially aligned. The, the hole on the top only was a little aligned with the spout. So only a little could come out. And I saw this picture, and the Lord spoke to me very clearly. He said, Dave, you are the lid on revival for this region. And I was stunned. Now, I knew he wasn't saying, you are the only one I've chosen. And if you don't do it, it will never happen. What, he was, what, what it was, it was a correction wrapped in an invitation. You are the lid. And if I can turn you, then I can move in this region. And it was then that God began to speak to me about this whole thing of fasting being a season where God begins to turn us. It's as much about changing me as it is about changing the situation I'm crying out for. 
Because God needs that beachhead for his invasion. He needs somewhere to land before he can begin to invade. And so I knew in that picture, I saw a hand reach down and it turned the, the, the top on that picture. And I was the lid and God's hand was turning me. He was adjusting me and he was the picture. He was full. And you know what struck me? Part of his very nature, his very makeup was he has a spout. By nature, he's, he wants to pour out. It's part of who he is. God longs to pour out on your situation more than you long to see it. Whatever it is you're contending with God for. But the first step, these simultaneous battles, the thing you're praying for, and the thing God's wanting to do in you, the internal battle and the external battle, they're simultaneous. But this internal battle must be won before the external battle can break loose. And to the degree He has you, you have the victory. And to the degree He doesn't have you, we're going to see victory slip through our hands because God will not violate the principle He set up. He delegated the earth to man. And if He has a small portion of His will, then there's a small portion through which He can pour out. But the greater your surrender... The Son of God was heard because of His reverent submission. The greater your reverent submission, the greater God can begin to pour out. Let's look at this passage very quickly and just read through it so that you can see what he's saying here. Verse 1, he confronts them. Verse 2, he, he defines their dilemma. Verse 3, they have their question for God. And then 3b through 5, God tells them, you have a wrong fast. Yet on the day of your fasting, I'm reading 3b, yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all of your workers. You see how he says, you do as you please. Willfulness. You know the, the word iniquity, you know what it means? It means willfulness. It means, that, that's why it says, in that day, in, in Matthew chapter 7, where, I think it's Matthew 7, it says that, Many will come to him on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things in your name? Did we not cast out devils? Did not we not heal the sick? And he says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. See, they were doing their own thing. Isaiah said that he has laid, uh, we have each gone our own way. He has laid the iniquity of us all upon him. See, we went our own way. It's that stubborn thing that wants to do our thing. That stubborn, fibrous root of self that doesn't want to be denied. I was struck this morning as we were in worship, thinking about food. <laughs> and uh, it's a battle. And. Uh, I was thinking, this is really what I was thinking about food. I was thinking about food, but I was thinking about this. Isn't it ironic that fasting is a principle in the kingdom and the thing that caused the fall was eating? And I thought, and then I asked the Lord, you know, Lord, what, what's the deal with the apple or whatever that was? You know, we really don't know what kind of fruit it was. What's the deal with that? Why would that matter? And it says that Eve saw it was delightful to the eye good for food, it was not only, it only tastes good, 
it was well prepared. It was like a high-end restaurant. It had one of those little leafy things, you know, little things stricter, you know. It was a pleasing to the eye, good for food, and was, uh, I don't remember the way it says it exactly, but it was, it was an able to make one wise. And so then we're going to say, no, I'm not going to eat, which seems unwise. I, I can't tell you the people, you can't do that. That's not healthy. You can't go without food. Now, I understand there's some of you who can't. Believe me, my fat body can handle it, okay? Some of you have health. I'm not, I'm not minimizing that, but there's just people that think, you know, well, you would die if you went three days without food or 10 days without food or 21 or 40 days without food. You, you would just know you won't. Matter of fact, it's very, very healthy for you. But this thing that comes against our intellect and it's pleasing for food and to say, no, I'm going to deny myself because I'm going to pursue the kingdom. And in the process, I'm going to allow God to deal with me and I'm going to treat my fellow man right. Matter of fact, the, the, the scorecard, if you will, of how I'm doing, I know that sounds kind of weird, but the scorecard of how I'm doing is my human relationships. Am I loving well? I'm not talking about an emotional affection. I'm talking about 1 Corinthians 13 love. Patient, kind, long-suffering means you're willing to suffer long and put up with it. You keep no records of wrongs. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. And that has everything to do with our prevailing prayer. So, he says this. On the day you're fasting, you do as you please. You exploit your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and the striking of each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Do you hear that? That's a sobering phrase. We need to get this. Our behavior can extinguish our voice in the prayer closet. You can talk, but God won't hear. You cannot act this way and have your voice heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day to humble yourselves? In other words, no, I'm looking to change you permanently. Not for a short time where you're nice to your dog and your cat and your wife for three days and then you're off the fast and you're back to the meathead you were before. I'm talking to me too. It says, to loose the cha- this is, the, is this not the kind of fast I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke, and to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor, the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them, not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will click, quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call upon the Lord and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like noonday. Here's Here's the principle. That God wants to work through you. Before he can work through you, he must work in you. And if you resist the work he's doing in you, it will thwart the work he wants to do through you. And so prayer always takes place on two fronts. We need to yield our heart and say, God, deal with me. 
Lord, I want to be sensitive to you. And Lord, if you're wanting to put your finger on some things in my life, go deep. I believe the Lord wants to take the plow blade of his spirit and his word and dig it in deep and turn over some soil in our hearts. I believe he wants to begin to correct some things relationally that have been been in place for years for many of us. And we can pray for other people to change, and that's a good thing, as long as we're doing it in the right way. But I'm telling you, God is just as interested in you changing through this process. So let's humble ourselves, and let's ask the Lord to begin to show us what He wants to do in our lives. Let's stand. Megan, is that you back there? Come up here. I want us to close in prayer and just ask the Lord to do a work in our life. I also want to pray for Megan this morning. Megan is marrying a local pastor who is a son of this house, Drew Angotti. Drew grew up here. He's on staff at another church. So I did warn him that it's going to be awkward that as a pastor, his wife will be attending our church. But they didn't see it that way. So I want us to bless her. She's such a blessing. And uh, so let's just extend our right hand to her. Father, Lord, we just thank you for Megan and Drew. And Lord, we pray for blessing. Lord, we pray that you would make them fruitful, Lord, spiritually and physically. Lord, that you would use them with the youth of glad tidings. Lord, that... Lord, as Megan comes to that house, Lord, that she would carry something with her. Lord, I pray that you would give her wisdom and fresh anointing, fresh insight, Lord, that it would infuse something fresh in that house and bless them. And Lord, we we just bless her to go, begrudgingly so. And Lord, we, we pray for quadruplets, Lord. No, 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 no. We pray for children, Lord, if they want them. And uh, so, Lord, and we ask, God, that you would also, Lord, minister to us. God, deal with our hearts. And, Lord, I ask that you would take this time over this house, Lord, that you would go deep in our hearts and let us come out the other side a different people, a people more aligned with your will. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation from Heartland Church in Ankeny, Iowa. For more information about our ministry and its available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Thanks for listening.